I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode two of Formula for Success. I'm David Colthard, ex-racing driver, and I'm joined by my team boss on this podcast, at least, Mr. Eddie Jordan. Hi, everybody. David, always a great pleasure. We're going to continue where we left off, and we'll have lots of banter going on. And remember, you can get in touch by emailing us at ffs at whisper.tv. F-S-S. F-F-S. Oh, I've been practicing that all week and I still can't quite get my Scottish tongue around it. Well, you can also send your questions using the hashtag Formula for Success and we'll answer some of the ones you've been sending in later in the show. Now, Eddie, before we get started, we do have some housekeeping after last week's episode. The listeners need to know, has Michael Fassbender responded to your message? Well, believe it or not, we were very unlucky because he was only getting up and getting out when he saw the message that I'd sent. But he has recorded something, especially for you. Actually, I have no idea why, but he actually quite likes you, DC, and that's a worry in itself. So uh, I presume uh, we can now play that because uh, he sent us a nice voice message for everybody here on the podcast. And let's hear what he has to say. Eamon, Konasatatu, Bula Boss here on podcast. Had a good little chuckle when uh, you recounted the story of when we were on the grid in Montreal and you managed to confuse everyone <laughs> speaking Oskielka. Um Give my best to DC. You guys are doing a great job on the podcast and look forward to seeing you at a race somewhere soon, hopefully. And uh, all the best to you both. Okay. Sloan, August Banacht. Wow. He does seem to like me, EJ. Yeah, I've, uh, I must be the racing genes. You know, he was always a bad judge of character, old Michael. Yeah, well, he's also a racer. He's taken part in a couple of uh, Porsche Super Cup races. So, yeah, you know, well, EJ, in fairness, you were a racer a long, long time ago. But anyway, that's a pretty good start. So let's uh, move it on. Which celebrity pal are you going to get in touch with for us this week? Recently, I came across Roy Keane, who's always in the news one way or another in the UK and globally, I suppose. And I had a word with uh, Roy and we recounted a little set of circumstances that happened when uh, he came to a race. Ireland had qualified for the World Cup and there was huge enthusiasm because we were going to New York to the Giant Stadium to see Ireland play and they were drawn against Italy, which like were just a mega force in, in soccer. So the great Baresi and all of these guys were playing, Maldini were playing against us and we were sort of thinking, what will the score against us be? But it's, isn't it brilliant to be here? But there was a guy called Paul McGraw who was a, an absolute out-and-out legend. And of course, there was Dennis Irwin and there was any amount of good players. Ray Houghton scored the goal. And of course, Roy Keane himself and became historical. And I remember... The next race after this particular weekend, 
Uh, I had on my car at Silverstone, Ireland won Italy nil. And I got an awful lot of slagging over it uh, because Ireland went on not to qualify for the next round, which the Italians, Minardi in particular, said, Ireland out, Italy in. (laughs) So they got me back. But anyway, the story (laughs) goes further than that because... Roy rang me up and he said, look, I'd really, really like to take Paul McGrath to a Grand Prix. It's one of his absolute ambitions and, and privileges and that he would like to do. So I said, sure, of course. And the next race happened to be the French Grand Prix. And when you see Roy, as we always do every other night on the TV, he is himself. But behind that, there is a very quiet, refined guy who's massively passionate, hugely caring. And, you know, Paul was going through a difficult time in his life, and we'll come on to that in a, in, in a moment because I don't think we do enough for our sports people, any sport that matter. Um, when they retire, we kind of inclined to forget them, but that's another thing. Uh, so they came on the grid. I had to virtually go and grab them to come to the grid because most people, they just want grid passes and they're on the grid and and, and you can't get them off. This was the opposite. He, he was so uh, careful about not to stand in the way. He was so wanted to know what was happening when, when the tires would happen, when we would take fuel as we did at the time and, and various things. He wanted the information, but he did not want to encroach on anyone. He was an absolute model guest at a Formula one. But the most important thing was, I'm talking about Paul McGrath here. He was such an unbelievable player. His knees were gone. He never trained. And that's what he became famous for. And Roy reached out to him when he had, you know, difficulties after he'd stopped playing and uh, he needed a helping hand. And Roy was there. I promise you there's not many people who have as much capabilities and credibility as Roy Keane. I absolutely adore him. Uh, I love his interviews, by the way. I think he's as hard as nails and he played like that, but there's a really soft spot inside there. Yeah, that's a great story, EJ. And um, actually, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll pick up on, on actually helping others in another one of our, our podcasts, because I know that uh, I've been to a number of evenings with yourself that you've hosted to to raise money for those less fortunate. So it sounds like it must be an Irish thing. You're all a bit mad on the outside. You seem to be uh, serial winners, but you all have big hearts as well. So uh, moving on, let's just get into it. Were you including me there, DC? Because I um, was. I was. (laughs) You might regret that. (laughs) I know. Don't milk it. I was being sincere. For once. Right. Let's talk Bahrain. Yes, indeed. So we we know there's a a famous lady in the UK called Mystic Meg. Well, I've got to give you credit for being Mystic Eddie. Uh, you you basically projected that Fernando Alonso would be getting some podiums this year. I think you might have even suggested he could win a Grand Prix, but I did. I, well, okay, let's wait and see if that happens. It's going to take probably the Red Bulls to break down, but it was still fantastic to see him entertaining us to go wheel to wheel with Hamilton. Uh, what, why were you so sure? I remember towards the end of the time of Jordan that I had it, and um, I'm watching the corner after the first corner in Suzuka, which is an unbelievable driver circuit. And I saw this young kid from Spain passing Michael Schumacher on the outside in a damp condition, and I said, that's insane. That cannot happen. He can't make this stick. This is just unbelievable, and he did. And I have never, ever forgotten that moment because it has a mark in my brain that's just not prepared to go away. He's that good. 
He may be well in his 40s. I think you should consider a comeback, by the way, David. You could be world champion still with me. But that's another story. I think I'm past my time. But now back to back to Alonso for a moment. I don't think it was that big of a, a, a risk to, to mention him because for sure... Um, I have a little bit of inside information with with that particular car, and and I realise with the people that they've got themselves on side with, there's a fantastic engine in the Mercedes. Uh, there's some people will say it looks a little bit like Red Bull, and because they've got some people from Red Bull, we're not going to go into that uh, espionage type skullduggery situation that couldn't possibly happen in Formula One. You and I know that, but anyway. I think you just did. <laughs> but the car looks great and it acts well. And, you know, it behaves very well. And I think the minute you see that on the track, I, I thought it was a slam dunk. I, I'm absolutely sure as soon as I saw the beginning of the race unfold, two Mercedes were sitting ducks, in my opinion. And, I mean, I think he just cruised by them. He made it look good and he had a bit of wheel to wheel to give us a bit of excitement. Um, well done, Fernando. Let's hope he can continue this. Yeah, and, and actually, all credit to Lance Stroll as well. You know, yeah. broken big toe, broken wrist, and a pin in there. It just, I think, it not only validates you know that he is a, a very good racing driver, but also it's a very good car. But just t- taking a step back to when you mentioned about when you first saw Alonso and that pass on uh, Schumacher and Suzuka, I remember seeing that. I remember trying that, and I remember taking all four corners off my race car. So once again. <laughs> Confirming why, am I why not I wasn't a champion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you were a visionary on that occasion. And I think that we're set to see Fernando Alonso, well, maybe not in my mind challenge for victories, but uh, certainly podiums. What really stood out for me over the weekend was not just how strong the Aston Martins were, but how close it was in qualifying. Now, I know the race was a different story. The Red Bulls, you know, pretty much won at a canter. But, I was really encouraged with this year two of these new regulations, EJ, just how close the uh, the lap times are in single lap performance. You know, historically, that's always been a gauge of what is the pace of the car. And that's really when the big drivers get the opportunity to show how good they are in quality. So that's something that gives me a lot of confidence. Just because Red Bull dominated in Bahrain does not mean they will dominate in Saudi. It's a very different circuit, a lot higher speeds. Different challenge. So, you know, I think we're still set for a good season of Formula One. But I, I, I have a question for you, David. I just, in my mind, if I'm sitting here and I'm Lewis Hamilton, what do I actually really think? I mean, do I pinch myself and say, no, I can take those Red Bulls on. I have the car. I have the people. I have the team. I have the belief and the passion because that's not what I saw last weekend. I think at the moment, Red Bull are in a class above everybody. Yeah, well, certainly in that race, they were basically controlling the pace to bring the car home. Both drivers, we now know, were on the radio saying, ah, I can go a bit faster. The natural competitive animal doesn't want to slow down. But yeah, I think there's there's going to be a big challenge for Mercedes, not only to to develop the car, and Toto's been very vocal about uh, how disappointed he is and what the Brackley factory and design office have managed to turn out. Uh, historically, team principals wouldn't be so scathing of their design staff, but he seems to be, you know, heart on sleeve, telling it the way he sees it. So I think it's going to be a long, hard season for them. But more than that, does that mean that we may well see Lewis Hamilton in his final season of Formula One? You know, he doesn't want to sign up to be, you know, finishing fourth or fifth or whatever it happens to be. He wants to compete for race victories. And he's, you know, not going anywhere else than Mercedes, but he hasn't signed a contract with them right now. Well, you would know an awful lot more about it, that sort of thing, than I do. You seem to be 
well tucked up with Toto. But anyway, back to Toto for a second. Let us be mindful. He's the CEO. He's the boss. You know, the buck stops with him. This is happening under his watch. To blame or criticize anybody in his design team or something is, is, is actually disingenuous. It's really crass. I hate to hear that because he must be a man, stand up and take it on the chin and says, my team, my people, we have failed to get the job successfully done at this moment. However, there is times ahead that we're looking forward to and we will be there much stronger than we were in 2022. So I think that Toto is strong enough, big enough and man enough to front this up and actually sort it out. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to to watch their particular recovery journey. 23 races in the season. They've got more races than any time in the history to to try and win things back. But uh, you know, development doesn't stop for the fast teams, the top teams as well. So it is going to be a huge challenge for them. I also just want to give a notable mention, EJ, and I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are. Uh, our rookie drivers, uh, Nick DeVries earned the right to be with... Uh, Alpha Tauri, after doing that great debut for, for Williams, he had, I think, a, a, a solid weekend. But one guy that really stood out for me was Logan Sargent in the Williams. He, he did a brilliant job. I mean, I castigated Williams. I thought that they had done a poor job over the winter. I think I've got that wrong because Sargent absolutely opened my mind. Now, not just in the race, but I think his qualifying was smack on too. He very nearly got into Q2. And um, from my point of view, he was one of the unsung heroes uh, of the weekend. Um, if we sort of talk about the shockers from the weekend, you know, Alpine, uh, in the case Ocon. of Ocon, yeah, he, uh, gee, he had more pit stops than anything else. He was getting penalties for not lining up on the grid, penalties for working on the car too early, penalties for speeding in the pit lane. That's unacceptable at this level. Sure, he got it wrong, but there has to be some form of leniency. If you watch a rugby game or a soccer game or any hardcore professional game, you kind of get a little bit of a warning. And I just feel that it was grossly unfair in the first race because we saw the distance that he was out. It was marginal at the best of times, and I think it was too severe. And then the knock-on, the catastrophic effect. Who actually clicks the clock? It is a, a decision, the team decision. They wouldn't have let him go before the five seconds, but somebody else said it was within the five seconds. Where is the opportunity to protest that? Was there anything else stood out for you over the weekend in Bahrain before we move on? I thought uh, Sergio was great. You know, the strategy, we know the way he operates with his tyres and for sure it was no surprised that he would always go longer. Uh, it gives a great opportunity to somebody like Max to be then able to feed off that. And I think you, as a teammate, and I often, I'm going to talk to you about teammates at some stage because you, you have a wealth of knowledge of all of the people that you had, but Sergio just seems to be top dog in that situation, which it can't be really ultra pleasant for him knowing full well that Max is the chosen one. Whereas when he was with... Force India, which he could quite easily still be in, in, in that Aston Martin at this stage, he'd be probably number one. But he's number two in the best team in Formula One. And is that something psychologically, I mean, you were with such great drivers. Is that something that you're able to cope with, David? I think when you're in your career, you, you do believe that you can improve. You do believe you can work on your weaknesses. And certainly for me, uh, it was one of the reasons when I decided to retire is because that was the first time in 2008 where I just didn't think I was getting better. 
every other year I thought I was improving either physically, mentally, experience. And it's only when you retire and look back, you go, ah, yes, uh, it's glaringly obvious that I didn't quite have the qualifying speed. Um, but you need that belief. And I think he believes that he has the chance to beat Max. Us on the outside, looking at it, uh, you're using the information that we have available, would suggest that he's never going to beat Max across a season. He can beat him in individual races. Of course he can. But if Max wasn't there last year, then... You know, Checo was really questionable whether he would have won the world championship. So that's what these special guys that Max do. That's what a Lewis does. That's, you know, what the exceptionals do. They, they don't really have bad days as such. We had very few Mexican drivers, uh, the Rodriguez brothers, until we found Checo. And, and he's a huge asset, I think, to Formula One. He brings a, a new dimension to it, particularly in Southern Southern America, where, you know, traditionally we always had four or five drivers from Brazil and we don't have that. I don't understand why that's all dried up. And maybe do you have a, a view on that particular aspect? Well, there's plenty of young Brazilians make their way into the lower formulas, F3, F2. But I guess, you know, we've got Drogovic is the reserve driver at Aston Martin. Looked like he was going to make his debut in Bahrain, only to find... Lance Stroll is going to compete. So they're, they're knocking at the door. I think he's a very talented uh, young Brazilian. So let's wait and see if he can uh, change, change the situation where we haven't had um, as many Brazilians in Formula One. So we're going to change tack a little bit, EJ, because we're going to come to the part in the podcast where we call it Eddie's Corner. Well, that's what I call it anyway. And it's an opportunity for you to just get anything off your chest. You like a good rant. So anything particularly bothered you this week? Well, there's an issue that is probably, um, it's not a major issue, but it's something that I'm concerned about. And that is basically the race was boring. We made it look good and we, we you talked it up brilliantly on the telly and various other things. It was great to see Alonso. But other than that, I mean, there was nothing. And the only other thing that really concerns me, I go back to the days when there was fuel stops and there was pit stops and this and that and the other, and it was a eight second or nine second. Now, I am not advocating that we go back to fuel stops. However, what I would like to see is longer pit stops. When you have 24, 25 guys descending on a car to change four tires, it's positively ridiculous. My solution would be, Front and rear jacks, that's two, and two guys per wheel, per corner. And there you have 10 people. If you need to change the front wing, you have a further two people. And when they're finished the other wheels, those guys can step up and help the guys doing the nose or whatever it is. But I want to be able to see cars in the pits for four seconds, five seconds, or there or thereabouts. We saw how great McLaren were last year in that time that they did, which is uh, sub two seconds. Look, fellas, it's nonsense. It's gone too far. We know how great they are. We know how trained they are. We know how much, listen, at, even at Jordan, we pounded up and down the garage nonstop to try and improve the times. And you can, with practice, improve. Anyway, let's move on from that. I don't want to get up on my high horse, but that's my little thing for today, DC. Okay, well, um, it, it, typical EJ style, completely left field. I guess the next logical step for you would be, you know, once you get it down to two guys per corner, you might even get the driver to get out of the cockpit and help them. That would certainly slow down the pit stops. But. Well, it would be if you were the driver because we know you'd never get out of the car because uh, uh, you'd be afraid someone else would take it over. Exactly. That I, when I was a test driver, would never. I used to do all the tests. I never let the, the test driver get in the car because uh, then he could show how quick he was. 
just want to take and sort of delve into your your mindset, EJ, on on the difficult start that Mercedes have had. Developing cars is really difficult, especially in season. How did you used to react when, you know, you won Grand Prix with Jordan Grand Prix, but when, when you didn't have a car that was working well for, for various reasons, where was your head at? Was it partly keep a brave face for the partners and sponsors or was it partly, you know, kicking ass behind the scenes? Uh, or how, how, did you, how did you sort of deal with it in the difficult times? I think you have a spy because they're exactly the things that I did do. I mean, you have to put a brave face and we'd say, look, Guys, um, at the moment, the car is not good to the sponsors and you show them the reams and reams and reams of coverage that you've already got for them because I think Jordan were brilliant at that sort of thing. We were able to really up and maximize everything that we did do on um, the publicity aspect. With somebody like Gary Anderson, I didn't have to kick too much ass because Gary certainly kicked it and he did. He kicked himself because he took it very personally. He didn't mind asking people to do things because he could do it himself and he could probably do it better himself. But he's that kind of a guy that he would never, ever uh, shout and roar about why the car wasn't performing. He spent night and day to try and turn it around. Of course, once you have a dog of a car, invariably you have a dog for that season because it's particularly if it's in the chassis side of things. By the time you go and alter the chassis or create new things, and sometimes the rules are against you, sometimes you get it right, and there's no given reason as to why. I have no idea. In fact, nobody knew the Jordan car in 97, 98, 99 was a particularly strong car, but the three previous years before that, it was ready for the skip every year, and um, that's about the best place you could put it. That's why there's probably so few Jordan's show cars, because I sold them all before then. <laughs> No, I, I certainly know from my point of view, when you, when you have a car that just isn't working, it's incredibly difficult to develop it into a winning car during the course of the season. I, I'd actually question whether anyone's without a major sort of upgrade, a, a, a B-type uh, car, whether that be new aerodynamic package in total or an engine upgrade or something like that. I think that once you're sort of set for the season, uh, you, you kind of have what you have. You, you get occasional spikes in performance where the, the engineers get all excited because suddenly for whatever reason, you know, if I look back on the 96 season, the, the McLaren I was driving, there was a couple of races that year we we're qualified on the second row and we got so excited. Oh, now we're unlocking the performance only to go to the next Grand Prix and be 10th or something on the grid. And uh, so I think it's just the variability on that day in history where we even saw it last year, didn't we? The uh, Mercedes was with, what pole position in Budapest with George Russell and then winning in Brazil. But it didn't look like getting many poles other than that. And it certainly didn't look like winning many Grand Prix other than that. So there's always a bit of up and down uh, with the performance of a car. All of those hours and days pounding around in those test programs, toe in, toe out, ride height and all that. It's absolute baloney, isn't it? If the car fundamentally doesn't respond and you don't have that feel in your pants that this car really can bite into that corner and move away. If you're always nervous that the back is going to turn around on top of you, you're never going to get the speed that you need out of it. And that's why I think people used to always say to me, and I think it was John Watson, he always said, I will tell you by the time I've got out of the pit lane on the very first run, whether this thing can work or not. And you know, he was a wily old fox, John, and he had some great sayings. And I remember that was the reason why I put him into the Jordan car the very first time. And he owned, he was the first person to ever drive a car. And I thought he was kind of bullshitting me a little bit. And he said to me, actually, 
I feel this thing has potential. I don't know whether he was angling for a drive or not, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not going into that. <laughs> but, you know, the fact is that you will always know a good car. When the car is good in the wet, you know it's an out-and-out dog. And people, the people listening may not fully uh, have grasped that in the past. But suddenly when it's damp or wet and a car comes out of the blue, then you realize that that car is absolutely no good because it's either too soft, it's not well enough sprung, the chassis is delaminated, whatever it is. So um, you know more about these sort of things, perhaps, David, uh, in more recent times. So you're more current. And um, I, I just have to say, in my time, it was so obvious to know whether a car was good or bad. We've had a first round of questions coming in to those who listened to episode one. So I'm going to fire straight in here. This is one from Lewis Foster via Instagram. He's been a fan since around 2010. Uh, he mentions the fact that, Eddie, you got the scoop on Hamilton moving to Mercedes when it looked, uh, looked to be a shocking move back in, in those days. I think that was through your conversations with the, the late, great uh, Nicky Lauda. You also have done the prediction on Alonso going to Team uh, Alpine, as it was at that time. So uh, who, who was the guy that was convincing... Alonso to move over to Aston Martin was that was that Lauren Stroll had you did you actually predict that one as well you don't need to be Einstein to work out as Alpine uh, and Alonso didn't work out and, and to be fair I have to delve into it a little bit because the McLaren Alonso thing ended uh, for me was just crazy because Alonso was so so against Honda, he convinced Zach Brown to ditch Honda. And I think if you were you were interviewing me, we were doing a TV program and I was very public about it. I said, McLaren will rue the day that they've got rid of Honda. And who, look at them now, look at Honda. They're just a magnificent, most of the Jordan wins were done with a Honda engine. They are the most incredibly dedicated and committed people. For Zach Brown to give away free engines and money just because Alonso was on his case, only for Alonso to leave. I mean, I, I just don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it. Just, I, I, it defies logic. Yeah. Well, there's uh, another question in here uh, from Dino via Twitter, where he's basically trying to delve into your crystal balls again, EJ, and, and understand whether, whether Aston can keep this up, or do you think it was very much just, you know, that weekend in history? Look, Remember I said it and you asked me about it last week. I am naturally biased towards this team. I'm probably unfair to ask me a question like that because I'm bound to say that I really expect great things. Please cast your mind back. Practice three, practice one, two. Where was Alonso? He was right there. I was disappointed very qualified because I thought he could have been better. And I have to believe that there is a lot of unlocked performance in that car. Because first of all, you have to make the people believe. For sure, Alonso believes. But it's the staff, the crew, the setup, the people putting the car together. They have to have that inner belief. Now, I'm talking about 100% belief. Last weekend in Bahrain will give them such a great shot that I think you might find them getting stronger each race. Interestingly, I spoke to Martin Whitwarsh at the weekend, who used to, as you know, formerly be operations director at McLaren during my time there. He's now in a senior role at Aston Martin, overseeing the delivery of their new factory. And uh, it's not far away from when they're actually going to be knocking down 
the building that you created for Jordan Grand Prix. So if you've buried any gold under the floor or you've got any bodies buried, DJ, you might need to ask them what date that is so you can go and scoop it up. I don't think I'll be going to Whippy all of a sudden, that's for sure. Leave Whippy <laughs> to do his own thing. <laughs> I know where the bodies are buried. So do you, by the way, David. Uh, yeah, because yeah. we all have a few old skeletons tucked away and uh, I think we'll keep them to ourselves. Best the people yeah. don't. What skeletons? <laughs> I, exactly. I just like You've to declare to our listeners. I have no skeletons <laughs> you in my have so. <laughs> under any building. <laughs> right. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting towards the end of this episode, DJ. So uh, just uh, have a wee gander at your phone. And has Roy Keane responded? Did you? Could you? You mentioned him at the top of the show. Had you actually well, reached out I to him at he, all? Uh, as we found out from uh, uh, from Michael Fassbender. For me to respond on the same show and expect somebody to be there 15, 20 minutes later is probably a very hard ask because I don't know about you, but I try absolutely not to look at my phone every five seconds uh, <laughs> and I try to have a life in between looking at my phone. So I'm not actually going to look because I'm quite certain Roy Keane has a lot more important things to do than to be res- responding to us pair of tossers here and trying to eke out <laughs> a story. Speak for yourself. And anyway, um, David, we'll get Roy Keane. But he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. I would be super surprised if he doesn't get back to us in a very short time. Let me ask you something that you can answer then. No Grand Prix this weekend. Uh, I know what I'm doing this weekend. I'm, I'm on route. I'm in, currently in Dubai on my way to Mumbai, where I'll be slipping into my Nomex once again to do a little running show car event there to thrill the people of Mumbai and give them a little taste of Formula One. Has to be noted that my suit has to be made a little bit bigger each year. Um, that must be that shrinking material they use in Nomex now. But w- what are you up to this weekend? I, I need to just inquire, is that through waistline performance or wallet line <laughs> performance? I, I dare say probably both. Anyway, David, what I love about you, you, you brought a new, a new life to me, a new understanding about conflict of interest, because I don't know how you can possibly jump from one sponsor to another without causing any insult. But you're a genius. I look up to you. I pay you homage, my man. Oh, anyway. Gee, a rare compliment. <laughs> yeah, but for a certain reason. <laughs> so what I would say to you, actually, I'm going to stand up here, if I may, because you see, it says Cape Town. Can you see that? I am doing the August this weekend. Uh, it's a famous, famous race, 40,000. I know we cycle quite a bit together, DC, um, and you leave me for dead, which is on a regular basis, you and Mark, you're very unkind to uh, me. Yeah, but you keep me, coming Mark. back well, from the dead. Huh? <laughs> but you keep no, coming grateful, back from the dead. We're the grateful dead. Anyway, <laughs> the reality is it's the Argus. I can't quite sneak in. It happens to be three or four days before my 75th birthday. I wanted to be in the 75 so I could go into that category and I might try and challenge for the first three or four spots. But anyway, I love it. I have a whole group of mates that you would know here. They've all sort of descended on the house. Poor Maria is going AWOL with all the amounts of requests from from drink, drink and more drink, as you can probably understand. But it is a hell of a weekend. Can you imagine 40 and I mean this, 40,000 cyclists all wanting to break four, four hours over the most beautiful terrain. You go up the west coast of Africa by the Atlantic and you cross over onto the Indian Ocean over the mountains. It is the most magnificent thing. And anyone who likes cycling, who fancies doing something, think about it for the future. It is just such a healthy, fabulous opportunity to get out and enjoy while they're still having this great sunshine and this great temperature in, in the Southern Ocean. 
Well, that does sound like a fantastic challenge. It also does sound like you're you're part of the marketing team for this and you're probably taking a cut of those 40,000 entrants. Are you actually paying your entry fee? Probably not. But um, <laughs> why are you asking such things? You know me better than to ask a question. Are you trying to embarrass me? Look, leave the public make their own decisions about my, my persona. I'm a perfectly law-abiding person, DC. You should take... A, a note of such things and look in the mirror every now and again and think about what would EJ have done in this situation? I still right. sound like everybody comes to me and said, Jesus, you were a bit brave saying you could have made DC a world champion. I said, I could. He's soft. He's too far into <laughs> Jackie Stewart. That Gilles de Ferran and he and the mother, they're all a certain culture. All the others were much better. You could have made it big time of me, DC. Well, you mentioned my old buddy, Gilles de Ferrand, so I think I'm going to have to reach out to him and get him on to challenge you on saying that we're all a bit soft. So this may be, before you respond, DJ, a good time for us to wrap up this particular episode and just remind our listeners, we'll be back next Thursday and every Thursday. We'll see you next week. <laughs>